0: So one of the more interesting things about humans, in my opinion, is how susceptible we are to accepting ideas or believing things to be true simply because there's a large number of people out there that believe that idea. And it makes sense if you think about it. Like if there's one guy on the street spouting off some insane idea, you're much less likely to believe that than if, you know, a thousand or ten thousand people believe that idea. And if there was a thousand people out there that you trust in other areas, then you're even more likely to just take everybody's word for that idea. So the funny thing about this is that, you know, culture kind of works like this. Culture, what is it? It's like this group of people all kind of living in a place, moving in a direction together loosely, you know, people might be bickering amongst the group. But in general, the majority seem to support these ideas, and then we call them cultural norms. And so sometimes, you know, when cultural norms are up for debate, there might be multiple ways of doing things, people disagree, people, you know, are talking about maybe the best way to do it, and this might even become political in a way. You've got different political parties representing different ideas. But on the other hand, you might have other cultural norms that are almost universally accepted and universally enforced. There might be a few people on the fringe kind of trying to, you know, push back against these cultural norms. But in general, people support these ideas. So if this goes far enough, a cultural norm isn't even really viewed as a norm anymore. It's not viewed as an optional thing. It's almost viewed as something that's just innately built into us humans. And a lot of religious norms are like this. They're not up for debate. It's basically handed to a religious person, you know, the way human beings are or the way the world came about. it's just kind of expected at that point that you take that as truth. So, when this type of thing happens, these types of people will look at people who aren't following the norms almost as dangerous. You know, they're not supporting the status quo and therefore are dangerous to themselves, dangerous to others, and damaging to culture in general. So, one thing that I've just been thinking a lot about lately is relationships in this context and all the cultural norms that are associated with relationships. And of course, depending on where you live, relationships will change and the cultural norms will change from place to place. I live in Canada, so you know, Canada, United States, general Western culture, it's sort of um, kind of universal in this area of relationships. So in many things, We have multiple options in culture, and we're able to freely choose. Sort of like going to a restaurant, they give you a menu, and you can choose what you want to eat. In the area of relationships, though, and what I've been realizing is that it's like a menu with a single item on it. If you want to be accepted by culture, if you want to be treated as healthy and in control and not dangerous and damaging, you really are sort of forced into this one way of looking at relationships. So if we had to put a name on this type of relationship that's prevalent in our culture, it would be something like monogamous, cohabitating romantic relationships. So not too long ago, I came upon this other word, uh, the relationship escalator. Maybe it's something you've heard about. Um, It's often used by people who seem to be trying to get off the escalator. And so I wanted to learn more about this, so I've I've been reading about it. And there's a book I, uh, I was reading called Stepping Off the Relationship Escalator. So in general, what is the relationship escalator? It's basically just describing the obvious steps that culture expects you to take in the process of building a relationship. You know, this goes all the way from first meeting a person and like flirting, all the way to living the rest of your life with them and eventually till death do you part. And the reality is it's actually an amazing analogy, this escalator, because it's, it's not a staircase, it is an escalator, because you're always expected to keep moving up. And when you're on one step of the escalator, there's always another step to get to. And once you get to that step, you never move backwards. You can't really get off the escalator without breaking up the relationship. And even if you're the type of person who doesn't like this kind of thing, uh, having labels put on you and being told what to do, It seems to me that culture will almost force you into these steps. So what are some characteristics of the typical romantic relationship in our culture? So first and foremost, it's expected when you get into a romantic relationship that that relationship essentially takes priority over all other relationships in your life. You know, Even your best friends that you've been friends with forever. As soon as you get into this romantic situation, this person is your new priority. So this goes on from there. You're expected to be each other's sole source of attraction and your sole source of physical and sexual intimacy. But at the same time, there's this element that they should be your best friend. So it's this lover and friendship kind of wrapped into one. Of course, this person is also the person you will have children with. So they're a co-parent. You might, you know, have various business activities with them. So they're almost like a business partner. So, of course, you're expected to live together, and because you have joint finances, you, you buy this house together. So they're almost like a roommate and a co-property manager as well. And then a lot of your recreational time in your life or your traveling, it's almost like this person becomes a travel buddy and, you know, maybe a sports buddy. Basically, your whole life essentially is expected to be wrapped around and organized around this romantic relationship. So along with all these roles, there's a number of other expectations. that you're kind of expected to take on. Um, number one, you're supposed to you know love and cherish this person in a very specific way, and so that involves having eyes for nobody else. It's almost considered a bad thing if you admit attractiveness towards other people. Um, you know, there's almost an accepted level of jealousy involved, where if you know, the other person deviates at all from these expectations that, you know, culture almost expects you to be jealous. So in general culture, especially religious culture, and like from, like I come from a Christian background, that's how I was raised, even though at this point I've kind of stepped away from that, the idea of marriage is extremely ingrained to the point where, you know, in many religious circles you're not supposed to have sex before marriage. You know, marriage is this almost holy thing that, I mean, I was taught from a very young age, right, there's this, there's, well, God has this person for me, and they're out there somewhere. And if I, you know, save myself until marriage, it'll, you know, God will reward me, and I will have a healthier, stronger marriage as a result. In my upbringing, in that whole Christian culture, not getting married and just having a relationship where you live with somebody was basically not an option on the table. And if you did that, and the people that did do that, we're essentially shamed either into marriage or almost just treated like, you know, sinners or outcasts. And the interesting thing about our culture is there are a lot of, even if you're not religious, even people that aren't really Christian, there's a lot of religious underpinning to our culture. A lot of the laws and the norms and the ideas come from this whole sort of European Religious culture. So it's actually something really interesting to me. Even people that aren't religious seem to uphold a lot of religious norms. And of course, the religious people almost use that as evidence to kind of say, well, like, see, you know, we're built for these types of relationships. You know, God designed us for this, you know, one man, one woman monogamous relationship. And anything outside of that is a deviation that should be you know, treated as dangerous or shameful. So within the context of this relationship, it's assumed that you know, children, this is the best way to raise children within this so they can learn the system themselves. They can learn what relationships are, they can learn what love is from their parents who are partaking in this very specific relationship style. So it's kind of the way that the relationship style is passed on to new generations. So as part of this relationship system, it's assumed that these relationships last for a long time or forever, essentially. I've never been to a wedding before where they say, well, we'll try this out for five or 10 years and then maybe we'll reevaluate and see how it's working out. I mean, obviously, that's not how it works. In general, that till death do us part is part of the vows and most people have the intention to try to make this relationship work until the end. Of course, you know, more than half of relationships don't actually make it to the end. And it's kind of a funny thing in a way, right? Because nobody goes into a marriage thinking that they're gonna be one of the people that break up. So there's obviously something going on here. Outside of our expectations, outside of our control, people are having troubles within the confines of their marriages or their long-term relationships that aren't really expected. So after you are married, and you inevitably grow and change throughout your life, you're essentially expected to grow and change together and essentially tolerate each other until the end. You know, this is a really funny thing in a way because I don't know if it's possible really to predict how you might change or how your values might change or how you might change your beliefs. And if a relationship is sort of formed around a certain belief value or just a similarity that eventually goes away, that can be really hard in a relationship. And it's something that you can't really predict or see. So despite this, and despite the fact that, you know, more than half of marriages fail in the end, you know, we all go into it with this expectation that it will last and that we are not going to be one of those 50% that actually you know, does call it quits. So the reason why it's an escalator and not a staircase is there's always this forward momentum. You're always moving up the staircase. For example, you first meet somebody. You don't sort of just stay in that initial fling stage forever. You know, you either drift apart or you move to the next stage, which would be Let's say you know you're more like officially dating and then you're exclusive and this keeps going until marriage and then all the way up until you've had this long-term relationship. At any stage in the process, it's always expected that you keep moving. You never see anybody moving backwards on the escalator. Um, if you do see somebody attempting that, usually that means they're probably going to break up or it's expected to break up. Um, For example, if somebody is engaged to be married, that would be, you know, moving up a step on the escalator. And it's kind of the expected step. Let's say you've been together for three or four or five years or whatever. People start to ask you, you know, like, when are you getting married? Are are you guys going to get married? Um, You know, when I was young and I got married, we'd been dating for about three years. And it just, even though I was so young, when I think back, like, you know, 22 basically knew nothing at 22. It's shocking that people allowed me to actually get married at that age. I look back at it, and I remember actually this one thing my dad said. I don't want to pick on my dad because he's just another victim of this whole system, all these norms that are forced on us. Um, And he was just doing the best he could at the time, but I remember him saying, well, there comes a time where you either break up or you get married. And that right there is a perfect embodiment of the escalator. You keep moving up or you get off the escalator. There is no way to just stay at one step and have everybody be okay with you. So I saw this perfect example from Dexter. The other day I've been watching a little bit of Dexter. And so Deb and Quinn, they're two characters in the show, they're dating and even living together. They were clearly at a certain step on the relationship escalator. They were dating slash living together. And Quinn clearly wants to, you know, move forward to the next step which is marriage and moving into an engagement and you're engaged for a time and then you get married but deb didn't really want to do that she was happy with where they were and almost would just have stayed in that current situation in that step but it's funny you can tell just from the writing quinn that's expected that you're not allowed to do that you're not allowed to stay at that step you either progress or you break up so in this case um we ended up breaking up. Perfect example. So I'm going to run through the steps of the escalator really quick. And the reason why I'm going to do it is you'll notice that this almost perfectly describes the typical relationship in our culture. And sure, there's a few deviations here and there, but in general, you know, this is, these are the steps you're pretty much expected to follow. So number one, which would be making contact. Maybe you meet. There's a bit of flirting. There's some like some kind of social encounter. It's quite casual. And you know, in certain situations or certain types of cultures, there might be some like hooking up or like making out. Just some some casual encounters. Um, in the Christian culture that I grew up in, you know, maybe not so much of that so step two is initiation of the relationship so there might be you know some more romantic gestures some courting going on so now there's some emotional investment that starts to happen and like this feeling of falling in love from both parties so there might be some sexual contact at this point you know unless somebody's sort of in one of those strict religious systems where the sexual contact is expected to wait until a later step in the escalator. So step three is interesting. It's basically where you claim and define the relationship. It's like a claiming of the other person. So there's a mutual declaration of love, and now you present yourself as a couple in public. So there's usually an adoption of the common relationship labels, you know, boyfriend, girlfriend. So at this step, there's also expectations that are put onto either person. So it's like, well, you're my boyfriend now, so here's all the expectations of a boyfriend. Well, you're my girlfriend now, here's all the expectations of a girlfriend. And the interesting thing about a lot of these expectations is they're not actually discussed or talked about. It's just expected. They're almost like miniature covert contracts, People will expect this person to behave like a boyfriend when there's really been no discussion to, you know, say what a boyfriend is in their definition. And to me, this is part of the problem. These things aren't created by people to meet their lives, to meet their, their own, you know, ideas or their own values or what they want. It's just adopted. So along with this step, people often become exclusive and that monogamy part of it, you know, starts. The dating apps get deleted off the phone. Um, All those other potential girlfriends and boyfriends, they sort of go no contact on those, or they're just friends. So once all this is sort of secured, it's assumed at this point that until you leave the relationship, until you explicitly leave, you are in the relationship indefinitely. Step four might be establishment. So in the last step, it kind of claimed and defined the person. And now in the establishment phase it's sort of like adapting to this new life, you know, you've got this new person in your life, you know, creating new routines and patterns around this relationship. You know, there's expectations of continually spending time to, it, with each other, so you're, you know, continually rearranging your life around these schedules in order to make time for each other. Number 5 is commitment, which is sort of approaching that, you know, engagement phase in a way. It's basically Securing your long term future with this person and discussing that aspect of the future. At this point, there's almost this like accountability for each other and your whereabouts at all times. You know, it's not like you're leaving for a week and you don't tell the other person where you're going. Um, You are at that point seen as a couple and you're expected to kind of behave that way. Um, Everything you do is sort of discussed and planned together. Part of this is there's expectations around meeting each other's families and sort of declaring yourselves as a long-term couple to the family. So number six is emerging. And I think this can come in multiple ways. Um, Traditionally speaking, people get married, you know, a, a merging of finances, you move in together, you buy a house together, you agree to almost some legal definitions of what you mean to each other and you at this point often get the government involved in defining your relationship. And culture and government, you know, rewards you for this and you get certain tax breaks and write-offs and there's all kinds of cultural benefits towards these types of couples. So in a way, you know, you're almost celebrated for taking this step so let's say at this point, you don't really have the best relationship. Let's say there's some emotional abuse in this relationship. Let's say you're just really not compatible for each other. But for, Let's say you're stuck in a trauma bond or the, one person has a personality disorder, one person's codependent. Anyway, there's all kinds of reasons why this relationship may not be that great. The point is, is that culture celebrates you and rewards you for this relationship, kind of no matter if the relationship actually is healthy. So number seven is kind of the conclusion, and it is that you are married and is expected to stay this way until death in most cases. If you leave a relationship after the conclusion phase, you will likely have all kinds of problems. You'll have to get divorced, you'll have a tremendous amount of cultural shaming, you will lose friends. It's made very clear to you at that point that that is not what you're supposed to do. So as a person who has gone through a separation and a divorce, I can really attest to that. Um, it's amazing the kind of shame you receive when you go through this, even from people that you thought were your friends. People will completely turn on you simply for leaving a relationship that really has nothing to do with them. The most perplexing thing to me about the relationship escalator and the way culture treats it is even if you don't want to be on it, People will still push these norms onto you. Like, let's say you get married, and I'm a man. Naturally, my female friends that I'm really close with will start to distance themselves from me naturally, sort of against my will. It's just part of the you know, the image of being a man in a marriage. You don't have these close female friends. That's assuming you're heterosexual, um, if you're gay, then people seem to sort of rewrite these rules in different ways, and now you're allowed to do other things. People, even if you don't really want to be seen as a couple, people will still view you as a couple, and they will start to refer to you as a couple. Couple, they will say Bob and Sally. And if Bob starts to do things that kind of go against the cultural norms of the relationship, he could be, you know, talked poorly about behind his back. Or let's say Sally isn't kind of living up to the ex-